0: Welcome to the Christian History Podcast, Chapter 2, Episode 17, the fifth of several parts concerning the Sumerians. Last week, I covered the Akkadians and the Gutians who controlled Mesopotamia between the second and third dynasties of Ur. If you missed it, you really should go back and give it a listen. This week, I'm covering the relatively short period of time known as the Third Dynasty of Ur. By my estimate, there's probably one more episode of the Sumerians after this one, and then this part of chapter 2 will be complete. According to Genesis 10, the mighty warrior Nimrod ruled over Eric, or in some sources, Uruk, as well as Babel and Akkad, all three of which were in the land of Shinar. I covered Babel and Shinar in the Tower episodes in Akkad last week. According to the genealogy found in the same chapter, Noah had a son named Ham, and Ham a son named Cush. Cush was Nimrod's father, making Nimrod Noah's great-grandson. There are many other fathers of nations embedded in chapter 10, and we will get to those that we can align with the historic record relatively soon. Like most multi-part episodes, there will be some review of the last interwoven into this narrative. So let's get started. The time period known as the Third Dynasty of Ur also known as the Neo-Sumerian Empire, refers to both the 21st and 20th centuries BC. Some sources also refer to this period as the Sumerian Renaissance. As a quick note, the dates quoted are from one timeline found. Other timelines have slightly different dates, but the difference really doesn't impact the narrative. But, to researchers, it's an area of great controversy, which I will not get involved in. The third dynasty of Ur was the last Sumerian dynasty which grew to any significance in ancient Mesopotamia. It began after several centuries of control by the Akkadian and Gutian rulers. During its existence, it controlled the cities of Isin, Larsa, and Eshnuna, all in the lower Tigris-Euphrates river valley. It also extended as far north as Jazera in present-day Syria. The third dynasty of Ur arose a bit after the fall of the Akkad dynasty, and the invasion of the Gutian barbarians. Like I mentioned in the last episode, the period of time between the last powerful king of the Akid dynasty, Shar Kalishri, and the first king of the third dynasty of Ur, Ur Namu, is not well documented. But most researchers believe that there was a brief Dark Age, followed by a power struggle among the most powerful city-states. On the king list, Shar Kalishari is followed by two more kings of Akid and six in Uruk. However, there are no year names surviving for any of these, nor any significant artifacts confirming that any of these reigns were historical. Akkad's dominance seems to have been taken by Gutian invaders from the Zargos Mountains, whose kings ruled in Mesopotamia for an indeterminate period. Researchers believe this period lasted anywhere from 25 to 124 years. The Gutians were illiterate and nomadic people, Their rule was not conducive to agriculture, nor record-keeping, and by the time they were expelled, the region was crippled by a severe famine and skyrocketing grain prices. Many researchers consider the Guti people to be related to the modern-day Kurds of northern Iraq. Some biblical scholars believe the Guti may be the Koa, spelled K-O-A, of Ezekiel 23. I'll get to them later. Probably much later. Uta Hegel of Uruk is given credit for having overthrown the Gutians by vanquishing their king Tirikon along with two generals. Please note, though, that the Guti were not disbanded, nor absorbed into another society, but they were driven out, probably back to the mountains from whence they came. Uta Hegel called himself the Lord of the Four Quarters of the Earth in an inscription but this title, probably adopted from the Akkadians, was likely used only to signify political aspiration than actual rule. After all, we know that the territory he controlled was nowhere close to the four corners of the world. No single empire has ever done that. And there is no doubt that he knew it too. But the members of his general population may have been in the dark. Following Uta Hegel's reign, Ur-Nammu, probably originally a general, founded the third dynasty of Ur the precise events surrounding his rise are unclear. The Sumerian king list tells us that Uta Hengel had reigned for seven years, or maybe 26, although only one year name for him is known from records, and that year is the year of his ascension. Suggesting his reign may have been shorter, but we really don't know. ur was at first governor of the city of Ur under Uta Hengel. How he became king is not really known, but there may have been some parallels between his rise and the career of that of Sargon of Akkad. He eliminated the state of Lagash and caused the many trade routes to flow through Ur. Some researchers theorize that Ur-Nammu had led a revolt against uta deposed him, and seized control of the region through force. Another theory is that Ur-Nammu was a close relative to Uta-Hengel, maybe his brother, and he was asked to rule over the city of Ur in Uta-Hengel's name. After four years of ruling Ur, Ur Ur-Nammu rose to prominence as a warrior king when he crushed the ruler of Lagash in battle, killing the king himself. But we'll probably never know what truly happened. As evidenced by a new royal title that he was the first to bear, the king of Sumer and Akkad. he built up a state that comprised at least a southern part of Mesopotamia. During his reign, he embarked on many impressive projects, including the construction of ziggurats of Ur and Uruk which acquired their final huge dimensions during his reign. Ur's dominance over the Neo-Sumerian Empire was consolidated with the famous Code of Ur-Namu, probably the first such law code for Mesopotamia since that of Uro-Kajina of Lagash centuries earlier. I covered this in detail in the last episode. Ur-Namu was succeeded by his son, Shulgi. One source also states that Shulgi's mother was the daughter of Uta Hengel. Who knows how that really worked? Shulgi II called himself the king of the four quarters of the earth. Many significant changes occurred in the empire under Shulgi's reign. He took steps to centralize and standardize the governmental procedures of the empire. He is credited with standardizing administrative processes, archival documentation, the tax system and the national calendar. He also established a standing army of Ur. His reforms are partly why the period is sometimes referred to as the Sumerian Renaissance. It's also why he is historically documented so well. Last week, I touched on the law code from the era, and at this point, I probably need to pull in some of the reasons why it's important in the context of the history of the period. Copies of the code were found in many excavated cities in the area, in Nippur, Sapur, and, of course, in Ur. Although the prologue credits Ur-Nammu, the author is still disputed. Some scholars attribute it to his son, Shulgi. The prologue to the law code, written in first person, established the king as the beacon of justice for his land, a role that previous kings usually were not involved in. The king claims to want justice for all, including traditionally marginalized groups in his kingdom, such as widows and orphans. More legal disputes were dealt with locally by government officials called mayors, although their decision could be appealed and eventually overthrown or confirmed by the provincial governor. Sometimes legal disputes were publicly aired, with witnesses present at a location, such as the town square or in front of the temple. However, the image of the king as the supreme judge of the land took hold, and this image appears in many literary works and poems. Citizens sometimes wrote letters of pleading to the king, even occasionally after the king had died. Of course, this was rational to them, as the dead king usually had been deified. Also, not to forget... But as a little bit of an entertaining tangent, Shogi fashioned himself to be a great athlete, boasting that he once ran from Nippur to Ur, a distance of about 100 miles or 161 kilometers. But then again, modern accounts say that the late Kim Jong-il of North Korea, apparently an avid golfer, once scored a 38 under par, a total score of 34 on 18 holes, that included 11 holes in one. The lesson here is, of course, be careful when dictators boast of records. Apparently, Shulgi wished to outdo his predecessors in other ways, too, and was deified during his lifetime, an honor that was usually reserved for kings after their death. He ruled for 48 years, from 2029 to 1982 BC. Shulgi was succeeded by his son, Amar Sin, who ruled for about 8 years, His reign is notable for his attempt at regenerating the ancient site of Sumer, apparently working on the unfinished ziggurat at Eridu. But Eridu was eventually abandoned during his reign, due to the increasing salinity in the water and consequently the soil. This, as you would suspect, led to poor crops. Remember, a few episodes ago, in the first episode about Sumer, I referred to the high evaporation rates causing a buildup of minerals in the soil. Well, this is one consequence. Amar-Sin allegedly died from the sting of a scorpion, which, to him, may have been a relief, considering that his death had been foretold would come from the goring of an ox. Amar-Sin was succeeded by his brother Shu-Sin, who reigned for approximately eight years from about 1972 to 1964 BC. The third dynasty of Ur does not seem to have suffered setbacks and rebellions as serious as those experienced by the Akkadians. There are no clear indications of internal unrest, although it must be remembered that the first 20 years of Shulgi's reign are still considered a dark age. However, from that point on until the end of Shusen's reign, presently known sources give the impression of peace enjoyed by a country that lived undisturbed by invasions from foreign powers. During this time, they sent some expeditions into foreign lands, primarily to the region bordering the Zagros Mountains, to what later became Assyria, into the vicinity of Alam these expeditions were sent in order to secure the importation of raw materials in a manner similar to that employed by the acadians military force seems to have been employed only as a last resort and every attempt was made to bring about peaceful conditions on the other side of the border through the dispatch of emissaries or the establishment of family bonds an example of the establishment of family bonds is the marrying of the king's daughters to foreign rulers, a practice that continued in the modern world history. And just remember that when someone tells you they want to be treated like a princess. But such a peace was not to last. Following an open revolt of his Amorite subjects, Sushin directed the construction of a fortified wall between the Euphrates and Tigris rivers in his fourth year, intending it to hold off any further Amorite attacks. The Amorites were also mentioned in Genesis 10, in verse 16. Susen was succeeded by his son, Ibisen, who ended up being the last king of the third dynasty of Ur. He reigned from about 1963 to 1940 BC. During this reign, the Sumerian Empire was attacked repeatedly by the Amorites. The revolting Amorites were considered a backward people by Mesopotamian standards. In fact, Ibisin's 17th year was officially named the year of the Amorites, the powerful south wind who, from the remote past, have not known cities, submitted to Ibisin, the king of Ur. The phrase, have not known cities, implies, to me at least, that they were a rule perhaps hurting people, potentially nomadic. However, despite his father Susin having built the so-called Wall of Martu across Mesopotamia against Amorite incursions, The wall was penetrated early in Ibisin's reign. As faith in Ibisin's leadership failed, the territory of Elam declared its independence and began to raid their former ally as well. I think I mentioned in a prior episode that Elam was also in the Table of Nations, in Genesis 10, specifically in verse 22. Ibisin ordered fortifications built at the cities of Ur and Nippur, but these efforts were not enough to stop the raids or to keep the empire unified cities throughout Ibisin's empire slowly eroded away from a king who could not protect them. Ibisin was, by the end of his reign, left with only the city of Ur. In 1940 BC, the Elamites, along with what some researchers have referred to as tribesmen from the region of Shemeshaki in the Zargos Mountains, sacked Ur and took Ibisin captive. He was taken to the city of Elam, where he was imprisoned, and then, at an unknown date, died and with his capture, the third dynasty of Ur passed into history. Archaeologists believe that by the reign of Imbysen, the empire was already in decline due to a long-term drought, maybe the remnants of the same drought that helped take down the Akkadian Empire over a hundred years earlier. Such a drought would have, of course, impacted food production, which also would have been impacted by enemy raids, bureaucratic mismanagement, and an inattentive ruler. And, of course, this would lead to food shortages and a declining empire. In fact, the record shows that in years 7 and 8 of Ibi kingship, the price of grain increased to 60 times the norm over a two-year span. Now, that isn't a 6,000% inflation rate, but closer to 206%. and works out to a doubling of prices roughly every 124 days and it also leads to some interesting comparisons. So let's stick to the grain analogy. Are the closest thing to it in our modern world, a loaf of bread? Currently, where I live in the U.S., the price of a loaf of bread is variable, but one can be easily had for about $1.50. A 206% rate of inflation means that in two years, that same loaf of bread would set you back $90.00. For comparison, in the U.S., our current rate of inflation for food is around 1% and leads to a doubling of prices roughly every 13 years. But IBCN subjects didn't have anything nearly as stable. A 206% inflation rate is almost tolerable if wages keep pace. But we have seen in recent history the deeper societal impact of runaway inflation, or as economists call it, hyperinflation. The best-known modern example is of Weimar, Germany, essentially the period following World War I, where the government literally printed money to pay war debt, and people would cart cash around in wheelbarrows, hoping to trade it for something more tangible. Eventually, the nation grew weary of the economic chaos and turned to despotism. It's probably a safe assumption that the people of Sumer were not pleased with the situation either. At least partially, the success of the Amorites in disrupting the 3rd Dynasty is a product of attacks on the agricultural and irrigation systems. Understandably, these attacks brought famine and caused an economic collapse in the empire, paving the way for the Elamites under Kenatud to strike into Ur and capture the king. The decline of the 3rd Dynasty is an event in Mesopotamian history that is known in greater detail than any other periods of the Sumerian history due to sources such as the Royal Correspondence, two poems on the destruction of Ur and Sumer, and an archive from Isin that shows how Ishbi-Era, as usurper and king of Isin, eliminated his former ruler in Ur. More specifically, Ibbi-Sin was waging war in Alam when an ambitious rival came forward named Ishbi-Era from Mari. Mari was located in present-day southeastern Syria on the Euphrates River. Historians assume that Ishbi-Era was a general or another high official. By emphasizing to the utmost the danger threatening from the Amorites, Ishbi-Era urged the king to entrust him with the protection of the neighboring cities of Isin and Nippur. Ishbi-Era's demand came close to extortion, and his correspondence shows how skillfully he dealt with the Amorites, and also with the individual antagonist some of whom he was able to convert to supporting him. Ishbiera also took advantage of the depression that the king suffered. Now a sidebar. Ibissin believed that his god, Enlil, hated him. Why did he believe this? Historians theorize that Ibisen's priest told him this after examining the carcasses of sacrificed animals. This was common practice in this era, and many contemporary leaders base their actions, or lack thereof, on this procedure, which brings me to a very important point, and the overall message behind all the episodes on Sumer. In Genesis chapter 11, beginning in verse 27, we see that Abraham was Sumerian. Therefore, this religious practice, along with the political, the environmental, the agricultural, economic, and all the other forces and people I have covered, was Abraham's reality. As of today, we don't know the exact years he lived, so we cannot place him in certain events or a certain era. Except, of course, that chapter 11 does to a certain degree mention that he may have been born during the reign of the Chaldeans. But with such, we don't know what was recent history to him and what had yet to unfold. But we do know the overall environment. And among other things, the examination of the remains of sacrificed animals was how the leaders from competing religions plied their trade. And Abraham, well, he had the one true God. A monotheist treading water in a sea of polytheists. I'll get to Abraham in a few episodes. But for now, back to the end of the Sumerians. Ishbi-era fortified Issin and, in the 10th year of Ibisin's reign, began to employ his own dating scheme on documents, an act equivalent to a renunciation of loyalty, not to mention adding confusion for historians. Ishbi-era believed himself to be the favorite of Enlil, the opposite of Ibisin's depression. And the more power he gathered, the more it reinforced both of their beliefs. It was totally a self-fulfilling prophecy. When he was done, he ruled over all of southern Mesopotamia, including Ur. While Ishbi-Era methodically strengthened his dominion, Ibisin continued for 14 more years to rule over a decreasing portion of the land. The end of Ur came about through a concatenation of misfortunes. A famine broke out, and Ur was besieged, taken, and destroyed by the evading Elamites and their allies among the other Iranian tribes. Ibisen was led away captive, and no more was heard from him. Ever. ishbi era's actions lead researchers to credit him as being the founder of the first dynasty of Isin, a dynasty that lasted about 100 years, although the reasons for its demise are largely unknown. Isin is not in the Table of Nations in Genesis 10, at least not under a name we would recognize. Nor can I find it anywhere in the Bible, So I'm not planning on covering its history any more than I already have. With the fall of the third dynasty of Ur, after an Elamite invasion in 1940 BC, the geographic area fell under the influence of the Amorites. And with that is the history of the Sumerians. In the next episode, I'm wrapping up the Sumerians with a closer look into their society, military, literature, commerce, and government structure. Then I'll move on to the Elamites, Canaanites, Amorites, and maybe a few others from the Table of Nations in Genesis 10. These will not take as many episodes, though. Also, I'm saving the Egyptians for later. And please don't forget that many, many episodes ago, I warned you that the second chapter of the podcast would probably be the longest as it sets the stage for everything to come. Also, it covers thousands, and yes, that is literal, thousands of years of history and numerous societies. So please be patient and just sit back and listen. As always, you can find information about the podcast on the internet at christianhistorypodcast.com. Comments and questions can be sent to comments at christianhistorypodcast.com. You can also find the Facebook page by searching the phrase Christian History Podcast as three separate words. Once there, be sure to like the page. This really does help others to learn about it. And if you're enjoying the podcast, be sure to subscribe so you get the episodes as soon as they're released. Also go to iTunes and give the podcast a positive review. This, I'm told, increases the likelihood of the podcast showing up when others search for a similar topic. Thanks for listening, and have a great week.